ask anyone of my age, my age is 38 if you're interested, ask anyone of that era who's interested in nuclear war what exactly sparked their obsession and they'll probably say the same thing. Threads. I'll assume all my listeners know about threads, that they know every bleak, harrowing, incredible minute of it. But just in case you're new to the game, I'll tell you Threads was a 1984 BBC drama about a nuclear war. And if you watched it, it probably unsettled you forever. Me? Well, it changed my life. I'm not shy about saying that. It's why I'm sitting here now, podcasting and writing about nuclear war. Having bad dreams. Being a bit of an anxious, fretful weirdo. But there were other great nuclear TV moments in the 80s besides Threads, and in this episode we'll take a look at the best ones and rummage through the archives to see what the newspapers and critics had to say about them. We'll also look at the war game, commissioned by the BBC in the 60s and then banned for being too horrifying. It was finally shown on the TV in the 1980s, the year after Threads. Threads paved the way for it, I suppose. And of course, it's not just drama. There were brilliant nuclear documentaries, particularly Jeremy Paxman's Panorama episode, If the Bomb Drops. And the QED strand of documentaries brought out a guide to Armageddon. And there were various strong and worrying debates about the nuclear threat. I've just realised that all the shows I've listed here were on the BBC. What about the other channels in Britain? Well, ITV's biggest 1980s nuclear moment was showing the day after. That was an American film about nuclear war, often seen as the American equivalent of Threads. But if you look back to my podcast episode about that film, you'll see my opinion is that it's a bit flimsy. Well, of course it is, once you've seen Threads, every other nuclear film tends to fade a bit. Nothing can compete with Threads, in my opinion. And what about Channel 4? Well, they had a role in showing When the Wind Blows. But in this episode, we'll stick to the BBC's nuclear TV of the 1980s. And we'll start with the granddaddy of them all, Threads. In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric. But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. So if you haven't seen Threads, then stop what you're doing and go and watch it. Or skip back through my episodes and you'll see I recorded one several months ago all about the film. So I'm not going to go through a discussion or summary of it, but we'll look instead at the reaction to it. Firstly, the director's reaction. Mick Jackson, 
who went on to Hollywood afterwards to direct blockbusters like The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner, recalled that no one phoned him after Threads went out. Poor man. Normally, he said, when one of your films goes out and the credits have rolled, the phone starts to ring with family, friends and colleagues calling to congratulate you. This was 1984, remember? You couldn't just tweet a smiley emoji to him. You had to actually lift a heavy plastic handset, dial a number and engage in conversation. Wow. So Mick Jackson sat there after the awful silent ending of Threads, that notorious scene in the hospital, and he waited for the phone to start ringing. Waited maybe for some chums calling to say, yeah, good job, well done. Lifting his spirits, maybe. But no one called. No one who had seen it was in any mood for jumping on the line to say, hey, great film, well done. Everyone was just too stunned and sick and rammed full of dread after watching that thing. So what did the papers have to say? TV critics and commentators, after all, are obliged to say something, no matter how sick and miserable they might have felt. The Financial Times previewed it on the 19th of September, 1984, and their preview starts with some angry words rather than upset or shocked ones. They say that in showing it, the BBC will be making up for the terrible decision made 20 years before when they decided to ban the war game. Again, I've covered the war game in a previous podcast, and it's currently available to watch on BBC iPlayer. Like Threads, it's a realistic drama documentary about the effects of a nuclear war on Britain. Although when the BBC saw the film, they swooned and went pale and said it was too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting. So the Financial Times said they were making up for, quote, 20 years of subsequent funk, obstinacy and condescension, during which BBC officials continued to prevent the British population at large from seeing that horrifying but necessary work. The decision to ban the war game was taken, obviously, in the 60s, when there was still a culture, arguably, that the BBC knows best, that the men in suits from Oxbridge who are running the joint, well, they know best. They know what the little man and woman in their terraced house should see, what they can handle, what their little brains can deal with, and they know what these little humdrum ordinary folk will be able to cope with and that they won't be able to cope with the war game, that they'll run screaming into the streets. So let the important and educated BBC men take care of that for you. Let them hide this nasty film, and you can all just watch game shows instead. Well, as we know, the 60s was when this deferential attitude and this entitlement from the other side was beginning to properly break down. We saw this most famously, I suppose, in the Lady Chatterley trial and with the Profumo affair. So if the BBC thought they could smother this brilliant and necessary film and would all meekly accept it, they were so wrong. Not only did the war game go on to be shown in foreign cinemas and win an Oscar, but here we have 
Newspapers like the FT still fuming about it 20 years later. The article goes on to castigate the BBC for banning the film, quote, for its treatment of Watkins, that was the director, Peter Watkins, for its treatment of Watkins and the stifling of his outraged cry to his fellow men, the BBC can never be entirely forgiven. Their argument that the film might disturb or even harm the old, the lonely and the simple had as much validity as the idea of not shouting a warning to a child threatened by a runaway lorry for fear of startling him. We can't blame, of course, Peter Watkins, the director, for being angry, furious that some of his best work was stifled. But the article here from the FT says at least the BBC licence fee payers can at least see it now. The article says, quote, For the way they have finally done this, the BBC deserves our admiration and gratitude. Even though, ironically, the new Jackson drama, that's the Reds, is, in my view, more bleak and, in a way, more frightening than Watkins. Where the war game is a passionate piece of polemic presented as drama, Threads is a chillingly dispassionate drama presented as a documentary. NATO's position on the United States action in sending it past... We don't like it's getting serious. Well, it's not weak enough about it, is there? Might as well enjoy ourselves whilst we can. I know, but don't it scare you what it might lead to? It only bloody scares me. There's no way can do about it, is there? I'll tell you one thing, the bomb does drop, I'm going to be pissed out of my mind and straight underneath it when it happens. As you'll have heard in that little clip from Threads, which is two blokes having a drink and worrying about the impending nuclear war, Threads is absolutely rooted in domestic realism. You don't see presidents and prime ministers in threads. You see them in pubs and you see people having pints and you see allotments and supermarkets, redundancies and paper rounds. Its power lies in its realism because the threat of nuclear war, of course, is real. It's not a Hollywood fantasy film. This is a threat that we all live with and it was particularly sharp in the early 80s when this was made. And it's realism that the Financial Times loved about it. There are no famous actors in the film. No white teeth and suntans. Instead, the horror of the nuclear holocaust is played out on a small, grubby, run-down domestic scale. One that we all, or most of us, recognise. And one that we can all too easily imagine ourselves occupying. The FT also praised Threads for not stopping with the bomb dropping. That's not the end of the film. That's not the huge big climax. The war game, for example, goes a year into the future. It takes us a year after the bomb is dropped and shows us the filthy refugee camps and the dead-eyed children. But Threads forces us to go even further, taking us years and years after the bomb is dropped, showing us how society has broken down coherent language is beginning to vanish and a new generation have arisen who know nothing of education, cleanliness, a mother's care, a warm bed and they've become absolutely brutalised. It also shows us the dreadful theory of nuclear winter in action. Soot and dust from the thermonuclear war has risen up into the atmosphere and blocked out the sun. So the harvests fail and the people starve. 
and any rays which do struggle through from the sun do nothing but strike cancers into the survivors' already frail and battered bodies. Threads looks far into the future and shows us what happens when the threads which hold our societies together snap. And of course, the most basic unit of society is the family. And so Threads focuses on two families, the Kemps and the Becketts, and shows us how they are snapped and scattered and annihilated by the Holocaust. But not all critics liked that aspect. The Guardian's reviewer, Hugh Hebert, said, quote, It would have been bolder, and I think truer to the spirit of the Enterprise, to have risked showing us a more random group, to have ditched the idea of a family saga amid the rubble, and to have explored a bit more the plight of the Sheffield officials, hapless and helpless, in their bunker. Well, I don't agree. I think it's quite fitting that the Sheffield officials are indeed hapless and helpless and quite soon die of suffocation and vanish from the film. Because... By doing that, by sweeping them out of the way, it shows how utterly useless they were. Hiding in a bunker under the town hall with a bunch of typewriters and telephones was of no practical use. So it's quite right those characters fade out of the story. Besides which, there is no family saga amidst the rubble. The family saga which the film begins with and which it sets up for us that kitchen sink-style drama of middle-class Ruth falling pregnant to working-class Jimmy, very soon ends, and the family members variously meet gruesome deaths, or, in the case of, for example, Jimmy and Alison, they simply vanish from the screen and are never seen again. They meet their terrible nuclear deaths off-screen, and we never get the satisfaction of knowing how they met their end. And again, that's realism at its best, because you would encounter that anonymous type of death in a nuclear war. Your mum might go to the shop and never come back. Your brother might be off at work and never come home. And you'll never know what happened to them. And you'll never have the, the bleak comfort of claiming the body and laying them to rest. They'll just have vanished. So that was The Guardian's criticism of threads. The Times reviewer wasn't very impressed with it either. This almost hurts me because I I am so utterly obsessed with it. But of course, um, others disagree. Peter Aykroyd wrote in the Times, quote, As a drama, there was such an unrelieved monotony of suffering that it did not entirely hold the attention. The images were unpleasant, but we've now become so accustomed to them that they seem merely stereotypical. Well, um, I don't agree with that. It's true that the 20th century has given us a, an endless supply of horror. We think instantly, of course, of the concentration camps of the Second World War, the Holocaust, um, as opposed to the nuclear Holocaust. And we've all seen the terrible black and white images of stick-like corpses being tipped into pits or tossed into trucks. But they, they are at least for someone born at a nice, safe distance from the war, they've always seemed safely tucked away in history. I was born in 1980, and it's always seemed like the horror of the Holocaust and the total war 
1939-45, safely tucked in history. It could never happen again. Not in our nice, safe, antiseptic, civilised world. Not now. So although those images from the war are horrific, they're no direct threat to me in my nice, bland, safe, modern British life. The horror of the 1940s has no connection to my humdrum existence here, where there's no threat from war or dictators. Touch wood. But Threads turned that idea completely inside out because it brought those images, it brought the horror of war. It took it out of black and white photographs and it took it out of Eastern Europe and it put it into humdrum, ordinary 1980s Britain. The horror wasn't happening in a camp, in a forest, deep in the continent. It was happening on a British high street outside Woolworths. So that's not stereotypical, that's the exact opposite. That's not what we've come to expect. And that's why Thread is so horrific. Because the threat is in the most ordinary, recognisable place. It's right here with you now, it's not from history. So I can't agree that the images of horror and threads are dimmed or dulled because they're so stereotypical, if that's what the reviewer meant. Seeing ordinary people in dumpy, ugly 1980s clothes suddenly confront the four-minute warning outside BHS, that's not stereotypical. That's shocking. And that's where a lot of Thread's power lies. It's ordinary people that you recognise. The Observer's critic, Russell Davies, made the excellent point that Thread shows us that the nuclear explosion, even though that is shocking and horrific and almost out of this world in in terms of the power that it has, the nuclear explosion is actually the least of our worries if it happens. He says, quote, The immediate deaths, mutilations and loss of communications are frightful to contemplate, but almost manageable compared to the subsequent damage to the global environment and human genetics. We saw years pass under the frozen skies, and if there was something almost attractive about one image, the neo-peasants tilling the bald hills of the new dark ages, then any thought of Let's all start again, was brutally blown away by the scenes of savagery, the rapes and looting, the bloody stillbirths, and the breakdown of language as thought itself regressed towards the single syllable, ah. But if critics were praising threads, the government certainly didn't. I have here a letter from the Home Office dated 17th September 1984, so that's just a few days before the broadcast, where a government advisor spells out the official response to the film, if and when they were asked to comment. They had four points to make in attacking the film, so let's examine them. Firstly, they said, We do not accept that the events portrayed in this fictional film are likely to happen because deterrence has kept the peace and we believe will continue to do so. End quote. Okay, fair enough. They were right so far. Deterrence did keep the peace throughout the Cold War. But so did sheer, flimsy, unpredictable, unreliable 
tenuous good luck. I think we owe as much to sheer good luck as we do to a carefully considered policy of deterrence. Their second point is, quote, that if deterrence did break down and we were attacked, then civil defence plans and training would be able to help the survivors. End quote. Now then, (laughs) that's what my whole podcast is about, isn't it? Preparing to survive nuclear war. How effective were the plans? And, as you'll know if you listen to my podcast, the plans, those which weren't utterly ridiculous, those which had a little kernel of common sense in them, might have looked good on paper, but would surely have collapsed in the face of thermonuclear war. Their third point, and I must admit I do agree with some of it, is they say that, quote, nuclear-free zone authorities, such as the ones shown in the film, would not be able to help their people because they have neglected planning and training, end quote. For those who are unfamiliar with that term, nuclear-free zones were local authorities or local councils who were generally left-wing and despised the order from Westminster that they must prepare for nuclear war, that they must build a shelter for their local government office so that they could coordinate all their nuclear planning after the bomb dropped. Their argument, these nuclear-free zones, was that such planning was useless and that planning for nuclear war might even encourage war by fostering the belief that it can be survived. So while I agree most nuclear war planning or nuclear war survival planning is useless, neither was there much point in declaring yourself a nuclear-free zone because nuclear war doesn't care. Nuclear war doesn't care about your left-wing philosophy. The blast and the fallout aren't going to politely halt at your council boundaries. So calling your area a nuclear-free zone is probably similar to what we'd call virtue signalling today. The Home Office's final point in criticising threads is probably their most ridiculous and most easily rebuffed. It says, quote, The film deals with Sheffield in isolation and ignores the assistance which could be available from unaffected areas. End quote. Okay, the film, yes, it focuses on Sheffield, but not because it was only Sheffield which was attacked. It focuses on Sheffield because it's a drama, and zooming in on two families living in one city gives the film some narrative and dramatic power. No one was watching threads going, hey, why won't Birmingham send in some stretchers? Why won't Droitwich give them some bandages? And I cannot believe Northampton isn't offering any tinned goods. In a thermonuclear war, everywhere is devastated, and so no one can offer help. You're on your own. I remember reading somewhere that that argument is like wondering why Hamburg didn't beg aid from Dresden during the war. They're all equally devastated. You can't seek help from, quote, unaffected areas. Not if it's an all-out thermonuclear war, which is what Threads does portray. So the government were obviously a bit worried about the broadcast of Threads, but at least they didn't lean on the BBC like they supposedly did with the war game and force them or pressure them to ban it. Let's look again at the war game. 
Although some were a bit snooty about the BBC's decision to finally show the film 20 years after it was made, the FT, for example, praised that decision and said it was long overdue. But Peter Kellner, on the other hand, writing in The Times on 18th September 1984, said, quote, The BBC, with its declared commitment to innovation and public service, is seen to follow lamely in the path of American television. End quote. I assume he's implying there that the decision was mainly prompted by ITV's brave decision to broadcast the American nuclear war drama the day after. Perhaps they thought, well, if ITV are getting in on the action, we'd better do the same. Kellner's article also implied it was a bit redundant to show the war game now, 20 years after it was made, given that so much had changed. For example, the nature of nuclear war itself had changed. The war game, after all, shows an atomic attack, not a thermonuclear one. And of course, an atomic attack, such as the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, are nothing compared to what modern thermonuclear or hydrogen bombs can do. So arguably the film, the war game, was a bit out of date, and so perhaps the BBC shouldn't have been congratulating itself on this bold decision. Also, you could argue that it was a bit redundant to show it because by the 1980s, the nuclear war and civil defence plans portrayed in the war game were out of date. Planning was, of course, constantly changing to meet the constantly changing nuclear threat. The article also says that the war game banned in the 60s, as we know, for being too horrifying, too bleak and pessimistic, can actually, now that we'd reached the terrifying thermonuclear 1980s, it can actually be seen as perhaps too optimistic because there are plenty of survivors in the film. Now take a look at Threads made in the 80s and the full knowledge of what thermonuclear war could do and of the nuclear winter, which would almost certainly follow it. We don't see lots and lots of survivors. We see a landscape stripped of colour and sparsely populated. It's also one which is stripped of kindness. The war game shows crowds of survivors in a refugee camp and they're gathering to mark the occasion of Christmas. And someone is even managing to play the sad slow hymn Silent Night on a record player by spinning the record slowly with his finger. There is some sad comfort to be found there. There is still a clutching at traditions and festivities that would bring the community together. There's no such thing in Threads. There is no hint of optimism in Threads. Not a single scrap of it. Threads, of course, ends with a birth. And naturally, a birth in film would normally suggest renewal, joy, a chance at new life. Watch Threads and see how they present this particular birth. In my opinion, those are the two most important nuclear dramas of the 1980s. Even though the war game was the 60s, but it was broadcast in the 80s. The next most important, if we must rank them, is, uh, in my opinion, When the Wind Blows. I consider that, though, in its own little category, as not only is it animated, so it feels completely different, 
but it's tender and sad and often gently comical. So it feels odd to categorise it alongside the bleak docudramas of the war game and threads, but nevertheless it's a drama about nuclear war from the 80s, so here we are. It was created by Raymond Briggs, who made, amongst other things, The Snowman, and the animation is just as gentle, with innocent faces, pastel shades and a peaceful, cosy setting. Again, I've covered When the Wind Blows in a previous podcast, do check it out, so here's a very quick recap of it in case you haven't seen it. It's about Jim and Hilda, a lovely old couple living out in the country. As the threat of nuclear war looms, Jim tries to read the news and follow the government instructions and takes pride in going to the library every day to read the papers and keep abreast of developments. He likes to think he's a man of the world and can protect his wife and his home if war comes. After all, he and Hilda survived the Blitz, so they know how to deal with war. And anyway, wasn't the war nice? They often collapse into nostalgia and fond reminiscences of the good old days. Oh well, thinks Hilda as she potters about in the kitchen. We survived one war, we can survive another. No need to worry. Here's a clip from the trailer. More than a few bombs to get me down. The Prime Minister, speaking a few minutes ago in the House of Commons, has warned that the international situation is deteriorating rapidly. Cramped. What's the matter, dear? Have you burned yourself? This is it, Dax. This is really it. But now they're caught up in events which will change our world forever. Just you be careful, Jane. The bomb drops. Their lovely, soft, naive little ideas about war are slowly shredded by the onset of radiation sickness. Living out in the country, they're not harmed by fire or blast, but they can see a kind of red glow on the horizon over where London lies. But their little cottage and garden is fine. It's just that as the days and weeks go by, the garden starts to look a bit grey, the grass and flowers seem to sicken, the water is off, there's no electricity, and the paper boy doesn't come, which is unusual for him, he's always on time, so they don't even know who's winning this new war. They've got no idea, of course, that the war is already over. Hilda's hair starts to come out in clumps. Sores spring open on their bodies. Gums start to bleed. Don't watch this film if you have lovely, kind old grandparents. Don't watch it if you have any kind of heart. It will absolutely devastate you in a completely different way from Threads. If Threads provokes dread... When the wind blows just provokes total sadness. So let's see what the critics had to say. We've got a variety of reviews here, given that When the Wind Blows was performed on stage as a radio play, released as a film, and then of course shown on TV. So quite a number of um, critics from all those different areas were able to get their teeth into it. Let's look first at Michael Billington in The Guardian, who reviewed the stage version in 1983, and wasn't completely blown away by When the Wind Blows on stage. One of his criticisms is, quote, it should be more moving than it is, 
But the problem is that on stage, the blogs seem rather patronisingly drawn, working-class caricatures. He with his malapropisms and simple faith in civil defence. She with her naive belief that the Germans are still the enemy and her speculations about whether the bomb will have affected the archers. As characters, they exist only on the crudest level, and therefore their terrifying fate takes on the quality of a textbook demonstration. But if it does nothing else, at least the play, with many an echo of Beyond the Fringe, exposes the hollowness of anti-nuclear protection, with the blogs stumbling around in paper bags claiming they know what it feels like to be a potato. Ken Jones, with current bun eyes set in a circular face, and Patricia Routledge, striving to preserve the proprieties even after the bomb, do what they can to humanise the characters. And David Nielsen's production, with its red smoke, blinding lights, achieves a bare approximation of a nuclear explosion. But a story that has worked in book form and on radio, and is soon to be filmed emerges in the theatre as a brave, well-intentioned shot at the nearly impossible. Now, I accept what um, Michael Billington says about the patronising nature of uh, the characters. They do seem, Jim and Hilda blogs, utterly unaware of what nuclear war means. Hilda thinks it's going to be a rerun of the Blitz, and, as mentioned in the review, still thinks that the baddies are the Nazis. Jim has to remind her gently that no dear, it's the Ruskies now, it's not the Nazis anymore. So she simply has no idea at all what nuclear war means. And Jim, who reads the papers every day and gathers all the government information advice, even he has no understanding of the the immensity of a nuclear war. And when radiation sickness sets in, they don't know what it is. So if he was reading the papers, if he was reading these booklets, he would have at least some hint of what was coming. But there's nothing. They don't know what to expect. So that's not realistic, and you could say it's even a bit insulting. These little country bumpkins, these working-class folk who don't have a clue what's going on in the big important world. But that's why you have to see it as not a comedy, obviously. It's too horrific to be a comedy. It's too sad. But you have to evoke or allow the comic element to come forth and accept it, even if it's hard to have a comic element sit alongside a story of a nuclear holocaust. Rather than seeing Jim and Hilda as patronising working class bumpkins, they are instead representatives of the working man or, or the everyman against the overwhelming power of governments and their nuclear weaponry. And there's not a single thing that an individual can do when faced with that power. And so it's quite right, I think, to shrink them down into a silly, naive, bumbling cartoon character because that is the amount of dignity and power we have when faced with nuclear war. The radio play, which went out on Radio 4 in 1983, faced some of the same criticisms. Val Arnold Foster reviewed it for The Guardian and said, People faced with the unimaginable do, of course, think and talk like Jim and Hilda, though occasionally the script went too far and the jokey characterisation turned Hilda into a sort of radio sitcom Mrs Mop. But the false note was rare and any tendency to caricature, after all it was based on cartoon, or melodrama, was carefully controlled in this chillingly memorable production 
by John Tideman. So the BBC wouldn't let E.P. Thompson give the Dimbleby lecture, but it did let Raymond Briggs tell us what happens when the wind blows. Let me apologise for not having delivered a podcast last week. I've been snowed under with work, but luckily and happily, it's all nuclear work, involving some TV, some radio, and a few London trips, all connected to my nuclear research, which of course is supported by the kind people who donate money to the podcast each month through Patreon. Even those who don't donate cash each month are still helping because, of course... When you listen to my podcast and share it on social media or leave a review or just tell someone through word of mouth, then of course that generates more supporters and more popularity. And the TV and radio people who've approached me over the past couple of months, they've all found me not through my great writing, (laughs) but through the podcast, which I suppose makes sense as it's broadcasting. So thank you to everyone who either donates money, shares, tweets, Facebooks about it, or leaves me a review online. And let me give a special thanks, of course, to those who support me through Patreon. Last week I had 48, and now I've got 51 people, so wow, thank you. If you want to consider supporting the podcast, please take a peek at my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. If you sign up, you can get various nuclear-themed rewards, One of which is postcards from each nuclear site that I visit. And let me add that I sent a batch out about two months ago from a research trip to London. And I've heard from a few people over the past couple of days based in America and Australia saying, "Um, just received my postcard, thanks. And I'm amazed that it took so long for them to arrive. So let me just assure you that if you do live overseas and you haven't received your postcard yet... Don't worry, I didn't forget you. It might be popping through the post box over the next day or so. Let me remind you that if you get any questions about the podcast, find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. I've been tweeting quite a lot this morning about uh, nuclear TV and I've posted some screenshots of uh, TV listings from when Threads and, for example, the day after the ITV drama went out. I was astonished to find that in the run-up to the day after being broadcast on ITV, which was in 1983, uh, we didn't cover that, of course, in this podcast. I've tended to stick to BBC nuclear drama. There'll be room for the day after um, in a later podcast, I assume, if we branch out into American TV. But um, the day after was preceded by comedy shows like Cannon and Ball and another comedy panel show featuring the Crankies. So it would have been a very, very surreal night of TV with Cannon and Ball and the Crankies and then a film about a nuclear holocaust. Very strange choice of TV listings. <laughs> so if you want to um, find out more about that or join what someone called my thread about threads on Twitter, get me at Julie A. McDowell or I'm on Facebook under the name Nuclear Britain or of course my website is juliemcdowell.com I'm also on YouTube under the name The Atomic Hobo. I have plans to start making proper nuclear um, videos, but as you can guess, over the past couple of weeks, I've been far too busy for anything. So that plan hasn't yet taken off, but there are some videos there. So um, that's where you can find me online if you get any questions or any um, feedback about the podcast. And before I go, let me give a special thanks to the following patrons. 
Lucy Stegerwald, Arika, Jonathan Abelins, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Ewan McLeod, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Laura and Rebecca Curtis-Moss, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. Wow, that list, as I said earlier, is getting longer. I don't know how many of you stick around to hear that list. Maybe as soon as I start talking about Patreon, um, some of you press stop and go off and do something else. But nonetheless, all those patrons who are supporting me, please know that I am hugely appreciative of all the support you're giving me. So even if others <laughs> switch off at this late stage in the podcast, I am very grateful. I see all your names. I know who you are. And thank you. Okay, so that's the podcast over for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. As I say, we couldn't cover all nuclear TV of the 80s. We had to just shorten it to British drama of the 80s, or at least the three best examples, or would have been here all night. I will do later podcasts covering American dramas, and we will do one specifically about uh, documentaries, because of course there are quite a few uh, which were plainly terrifying. I'm thinking, of course, of Paxman's Panorama episode, If the Bomb Drops, and the QED Guide to Armageddon. Those are my two favourites, and they're both available on YouTube. So we'll cover them at a later point. If you want to watch them, they are there, and I highly recommend them. But that's all for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I'll see you soon.